Oh, oh wow, I got a clapping. They're so excited. I like that. I got to keep that energy level about here now if I'm going to keep going with you guys. Uh, my name is Simon. I am one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you. If you are new, if this is your first time, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for worshiping with us. Thank you for joining us and learning about Jesus and what he's done in our life and the lives of others. For those that are online, we love you. We will love that we can serve you in this way and hope that this is a blessing to you since you aren't able to make it in the room today. With that, we are still in Acts. We will be until Advent, which, by the way, is coming rapidly. Uh, there's a lot going on. I can't wait to show you all the fun things happening for Christmas. It's going to be a wonderful time. So when I first came to Christ and got plugged in at the church that I was at, I started doing whatever they did. So if they're like, hey, we're serving here, I'd serve there. Hey, we're having a Christmas program, join the choir. I joined the choir. And when they went on missions trips... They said, hey, let's go on a missions trip. And I said, what's a, what's a, what's a missions trip? What's that? They get to go to this other country. I'm like, I'm in. Not realizing that there was actually a job to do when we went there. And so we got to go to all these crazy places uh, when I was in high school. So I got to go to Australia and spend about two to three weeks that I was out there. Went to Mexico a number of times, serving down there, helping out. Uh, we did these crazy, like, song and dance tours where we would go and act and sing at national parks and we went to Seattle one time like just did all this this stuff and it kind of started getting drilled in my head that mission was about going there to do something it was always going someplace and we got training how to evangelize how to understand the gospel but that we would always go to a mission and it wasn't until later, as I got older, realizing that missions isn't just about going someplace, that missions is what we've been called to no matter where we are. And the more that I understood the gospel, how it impacts me, how it impacts those around us, it wasn't until then that I started realizing the mission field is very broad. And so as we get into our passage today, in this next section, it can, it can maybe feel a little bit off. We... We know that we are dealing with lots of different figures in history as we've been going through Acts. We keep getting introduced to new people. And last week I talked about this guy, the last two weeks we talked about Saul, right? We talked about his conversion. We talked about how he started going around preaching the gospel. And I even said, hey, Saul's going to become one of the preeminent figures in the book of Acts as we move forward. But I also knew that we have this week and the week that follows that go and they follow Peter. And it feels like, well, what's going on? Is the writer confused? No, the writer's not confused. As a matter of fact, what we see going on is God is working in these two different individuals' lives as they go to uh, take the gospel forward, that there's an overlap. That overlap is on purpose. See, the gospel never stops. Though God may be reaching different people at different times and in different ways, that overlap is showing from the writer that God is doing the same thing in different ways and at different places. And that's the idea that he wants to communicate to us. And so what I want to do today is as we jump into this section, I want to see... What does that mean for us? What did that mean for them? And what was Peter doing on these particular mission trips? So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Acts chapter 9. That's where we're going to be kind of camping out today. You can follow along on the screen if you want to. If you don't have a Bible, there's a bunch of ESV Bibles in the seats in front of you underneath. Uh, if you don't have one, please grab that, take that, use that. We'd love for that to be a gift for you if you don't have a Bible. Here we go. It says this. Now, 
As Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her and laid her in the upper room, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took them to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all throughout Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, let me pray. And we're just going to go ahead and jump into this passage. Jesus, I thank you for this section of scripture. It's been just so much fun studying all the different aspects of what you are doing uh, in this particular passage. Lord, I feel inadequate to even present all the truth and uh, the beauty of this passage, but I ask where uh, that you would work through me first and foremost. Holy Spirit, speak through me this morning. In the areas of things that I don't cover, I ask that that would be uh, causing your people to reflect and to seek out and to explore more truths of who you are, that they would talk about that in their life groups. Lord, I ask that if there's anything that I have written that's not from you, that you would take that away. I don't want to be a distraction. I don't want to lead anyone uh, into a place where they're not hearing the gospel more fully. I ask that you would, you would calm my spirit today. For whatever reason, Lord, I just feel like a little cloudy in the head and I'm, I'm feeling just a little bit off and, and I know that you are a God that works through all of that and so I trust that you would do what you need to do this morning. So we love you and we ask that you would enlighten us this morning. Pray this in your name, amen. Okay, so if you want to, you can follow along in your sermon notes. I've got the points that we're going to be in today, but there's six things that I observed this week and there's always more. It's okay, you're like, I have more. Write those in there. You can write more notes. That's great. I love that. But these are the ones that I came up with as we started to look at what can we learn from this passage and what it means to be on mission with the message of Jesus Christ. So the first point is this. The church reaches out and the church reaches in. So it reaches in and it reaches out. So Peter at this point, as he is uh, able to, he's able to move around more freely than they have in the past. And so he is going to go and check on other churches in the surrounding area. You've got to remember that there was a mass exodus and spreading of the men and women who loved Jesus to all the surrounding cities and villages and towns, right? So they've all kind of spread out there. So you've got to say, like, so what does that mean for Peter? What does he do? Like Peter was in Jerusalem. He was preaching the gospel. He was teaching people. He was raising up leaders. Super important. He had a lot of work to do. So does he just stay there and keep doing what he's doing, expanding the church and hoping that things are working out? No. As a matter of fact, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, what he says is, I'm going to go on this big journey. I'm going to leave all the things that I'm doing here. And I'm assuming he left those incapable hands that were there. And then he was going to go and visit all these other churches. He wanted to see what God was doing, how the gospel was spreading, how lives were being transformed. And he wanted 
to encourage the men and the women that were just kind of on the furthest areas of that, of that place. Now, um, I, I've mentioned before that I planted a church at one point. When I was a, a young church planter, uh, you know, we're in a big city doing, doing a bunch of work, but um, I was the only guy on staff. We, we had enough money to pay for me, and the church was super generous, but we were never able to get to that point where we could hire someone else to help out. And whereas in the office here, if you ever come in the office and you've been around here during the day, it's, there's a lot of motion happening. Uh, we have people walking around and we're talking and we're enjoying life. We're sharing what Jesus is doing. It's actually really encouraging to come into the office because everyone's on mission and on point and we're all encouraging each other. Well, I didn't have that when I was planting. And I remember feeling lonely all the time. And there was a, a pastor of a large church that was there who knew me and I knew him. And he said, hey, let's just grab lunch on a regular basis. And so he started to take me out to lunch. And we went to this really fancy restaurant called Del Taco. And so we went there and he would even pay for me. It was amazing. So he took me to Del Taco and we would spend time there. And I would talk about how at times I was just kind of, I just felt isolated. I felt alone. He said, hey, you want to join us for our staff meeting? Now, no one wants to go to any meetings, I've come to notice. So I'm like, yes. And so I ended up going to someone else's staff meeting. So if I didn't have a, a bad enough, I'm like, yeah, I'll go. And we prayed. And we talked. And I was around other pastors and believers and people on staff that knew what they were doing about taking the gospel to those around them and serving that community. And I was so encouraged just to be around other full-time pastors who were doing ministry. And that was so encouraging to me. See, when you're disconnected from the larger body, you can feel like you're just somewhere out here that you're not connected to what's going on. You can start to wonder, like, I wonder how they're doing. I, I wonder if they forgot. I wonder if they remember me. I wonder if they're praying for me during this time. And you start to think, I'm just too isolated to even be cared about. You, you may even wonder at times, I wonder what God's doing. I, I wonder if God's still moving in the direction that we think that he is. Well, well Peter's going to do the very thing that was done to encourage me. He doesn't want these men and women to be discouraged as they kind of exist in the pressures of ministry. And that's a weird term if you don't work in full-time ministry, but there are these pressures that exist in full-time ministry as you deal with the lives of others. It's hard. It's difficult. You can, you can kind of take their brokenness and their hurt, and you can put that on yourself at times, and you can feel the weight of that. And so Peter wants to go and encourage them and let them know that there's some good things going on. Now, where Peter's going to go is really important because he's moving away from Jerusalem. If we throw that map up, uh, I want you to see this. So this is what's going on right now. So you see Jerusalem in the bottom right-hand corner. That's where Peter starts, okay? And he's going to make his way kind of up and over to Lydda. That's going to be the first location he's going to go. Ultimately, he'll end up in Joppa, as we read uh, earlier, and then... Later on, he's going to move his way all the way up to Caesarea. We're going to look at that next week. But this is the journey that he starts to go on as he goes to see these other churches and what's happening. And as he goes along the way, he's encouraging these men and women in these small churches. So he's, he's reaching in, right? He's encouraging those that are inside. But as he goes, he keeps sharing the gospel. He keeps teaching and preaching. So he's reaching out as well. So he's doing both at the same time. And so as he gets up to this, uh, as he's kind of moving towards the coast, he comes to this town called Lydda. And as he visits the church there, he visits the disciples and the saints, and he's talking with them. And it says that he runs into a man named Aeneas. And we don't 
We don't know a ton about this individual. We don't know if he's a believer or not. He could have been. Uh, chances are he probably wasn't. Uh, he might have just been someone who was begging, who was asking for money because he was, you know, didn't have the ability to do that. But we do know one thing. We know that he didn't have the ability to walk for at least eight years. We know that about him. There was something wrong with his legs that he could not walk. Now, as I start reading through these sections and I start seeing what God's doing, you, you have to start wondering if Peter is connecting the dots. If Peter starts thinking about his time with Jesus and he starts thinking about what he's doing, if he's not starting to glean these similarities that are going on, those parallels to what Jesus was doing and what he's doing now. And so he's probably thinking about all, all the times that he spent with him and how he was with him and how Jesus went from village to village and town to town. And we're going to see as we move into this story, he's going to start paralleling some of the things that he was doing. But the thing I want to ask is this. Because I always want to ask questions. We've got to ask questions as we read God's word. Do you, as the church, the church is people, right? That's us. We're the church. Do you need to reach out to someone to encourage them? Is there someone in the, in the church that you know is hurting, that's going through a difficult time, that maybe they feel a little bit isolated right now, that you need to reach out to, to bring the same kind of encouragement that Peter was bringing to these churches? Maybe there's someone outside of the church that you're just like, this person just needs to be loved on and cared for because they're going through a difficult time. The church has always been marked by those that go and meet people where they are to love them and care for them because we love and care for the people in our church. What is God telling you right now? If you're taking notes, write down a name. Follow up on that name today, later today, later this week. Two, the second thing we see is that uh, it is Jesus who heals. So Peter comes up to this guy. It's important to note what he does not say. He doesn't say, I tell you to get up. I, in my name, in my power, get up. He doesn't say any of that. No, he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. That's what he says. And it may seem like a little point, but I don't want to miss what he's truly saying in here because he's saying something that points to the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is this. It is only Jesus who heals us. That's the point. That's why he says it in Jesus' name. It's Jesus is the one who heals. So in Isaiah 53, um, and like I said, we are going to be in Isaiah quite a bit for our Advent series. So there's a little bit of a teaser if you want to know where we're going to be. So that's where we're going to be. In Isaiah 53... Uh, verse 5, it says this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Right? So it's talking about this Messiah, this Christ who's going to come, and he's going to heal through his wounds and what's going on. So we would know that that's connected to Jesus specifically because in Matthew 8, 16 through 17, it says this, That evening they brought to him, talking about Jesus, many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our disease. See, this is always pointing to the fact that there was one that was going to come that would be the healer that would heal us of our brokenness. 
And then what we see in the New Testament is verse after verse after verse is that Jesus, Jesus is just healing people in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed that? Like, he's just healing people. Like, I go, so, like, did you really want to be a doctor instead? And so this is like your side hustle that you're doing, Jesus? Like, why, why all the healing? Why is he constantly healing all the time? See, again, Jesus is pointing to the bigger picture of what he's going to do. And we have to understand that. See, sin has made us not well. Sin has really messed things up. It has made us sick. It has crippled us like the man in the story. Sin keeps us from being who we were designed to be. In Genesis 1.26, it says that we were made in the image of God and that our life is to reflect the image of God. In everything that we do. So as we were made, we were meant to be those that live in such a way that reflect who God is, his character, his attributes, his nature. We are supposed to do that. Here's the problem. Sin has marred that ability in us to do that very thing that we were designed to do. As soon as sin came into the world, as soon as we were affected by sin, we were not able to accurately reflect God and who he is. And when I talk about sin, if you're like, that's a weird word that has a lot of negativity behind it. Well, sin is negative, And all sin really is is this, is when we don't trust God with what he said is good, right, and perfect. So if you want to know what sin is, if it's, it's not listening and following and submitting to God and what he said is good, right, and perfect. And you may say, well, why should I? If he is all-powerful, if he is all-knowing, and he is all-present, then he is right, and he knows what is good, and he knows what is wrong. That's the reality of, of, of who God is. So Peter is showing us through the power of Jesus that he heals those that are unable to heal themselves. The Bible would say, for a while we were uh, dead in our trespasses, Christ came and died for us. See, we are unable to do the work to meet God's perfect standard. We're unable to be image bearers like we were designed to be. And he's showing them that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the thing that brings the healing that we desire. See, the men and the women there, they, they wanted that sin that was holding them back, that, that was keeping them from being who they were designed to be. They wanted someone to kill that and remove that from them. They wanted to be made whole again. They wanted to live in the way that they were designed to live. They, they wanted to live in a way that would reflect God, that would bring him glory, that would bring him honor. And, and the reality is that they couldn't. My question is, what are you looking for healing from? Or maybe more importantly, what sin holds you tight in your life right now? The Bible would talk over and over again about how sin is like being a slave, like sin is like having chains on us, like it's keeping us in bondage, that it oppresses us. And all these sins that we know that we have in our lives, they keep us from being who we're meant to be. They keep us from being the image bearer that God's called us to be. What sin is in your life? What addiction? What thing holds you back? What keeps you? And, and, I, and I can tell you, I've met with enough people here at this church and at many churches that although we may smile, we may say, bless you, brother, it's a great morning. 
that there are hurting and broken people here. That's the reality of who I talk to. And I am not surprised by who's doing what and what sin's happening in this world anymore because I've seen too much ugly. And I know that in a group this size, there's a large portion of men and women that are trapped in sin and they can't get out. I was trapped in sin before I went into ministry. There was these things that were just, that were, that I was stuck in. And Jesus can free you from them. He does heal you. Number three, changed lives change lives. Have you noticed that we have been trying really hard to share more testimonies here? Have you noticed that we've like been just bringing people up and talking about stuff and sharing people's stories more and more? So here's the thing. Our testimony, as someone who's been saved by Jesus Christ, is our verbal confirmation of the power of Jesus being able to heal us. That's, that's really what it is. That's what our testimony is. It's saying, this is what has happened. I have been healed from this. I was this, and Jesus came and saved me, and now I'm this. That's what we're talking about. See, Romans 1.16 would say that the gospel is the power of God. That's what it says. And I was thinking about that last night, so I have these weird little habits of what I do, and every Saturday night I sit in the hot tub and I pray over the sermon. It's weird. I like it. I don't care. And it was raining, which was even better. And there was lightning and thunder last night. And I'm like, I'm in my happy place right now. If it was snowing, it would be the only thing that would make it better. And I sat out there and I just pray over the sermon. And I'm thinking about these sections. I'm thinking about these passages. I'm thinking about the power of God. And I'm seeing lightning explode in the sky. I'm hearing the thunder ripping across the, uh, the canyon of where we are. And it's raining. I'm like, this is nuts. Like, God is powerful. But the Bible tells us that the power of God is the gospel. Whereas we think about God's power, we think about his justice and his wrath and his ability to control things. But it tells us this, that God's power is most perfectly displayed in the gospel, which is poured out through love for those that are lost and broken. Isn't that crazy that that's how he shows to show his power is through the gospel? The gospel is about those that have had their lives changed by the power of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, taking their sins, having those forgiven, giving him righteousness so they can walk in newness of life. That is the gospel. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. It is by his grace and his mercy alone. And it's only through faith that we can have salvation in our Lord. That's it. And our testimony is the evidence of that power playing out in our lives. He takes spiritually dead people and he makes them alive. He does the work. We don't. And he uses us to point to that truth in everything we do. See, that's the good news. And we have an opportunity to share that good news with others. And this is why I'm just, God doesn't have to do any of this stuff. But he does all these things because he's so good. He is so loving, he is so kind that God allows us to be a part of his work, though we don't, he doesn't need our help. I, I, I think back to when I was a kid and my dad would work on cars. He's like, hey, come help me. And I'd go and I'd like hold a wrench or I'd hold a rag and I'm like, mom, I help work, fix the car. She's like, oh, good job, honey. That's what it's like with God's work. God's like, come be a part of what I'm doing. But just like my dad, he did all the work but he allowed me to be a part of it so I could be a part of what he was doing. That's what God's doing as we get to share our testimony. 
Now, here's the thing I love. People can debate about the facts of the Bible and what this says and history and archaeology, and they can disagree with what you believe, can't they? Because we just got to turn on the news. Like, that's happening. But you know what they can't debate? They can't debate your experience. They don't have the right. They don't have the ability to. They can't debate the experience of what Jesus has done in your life because you have experienced that and they have not. In this section of Scripture, we see that these people, this is just what's happening. They are seeing this healing of Jesus and it tells us that people turn to the Lord. And if you look at the way that the word Lord is spelled, it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D. It's not capital L-O-R-D. So what are they talking about? That they're turning to Jesus as their Lord. That's what they're doing in that moment. They wanted the same healing power of Christ in their lives for the healing of the sins that affected them, from the separation that sin caused between them and God. My question is this. When is the last time you shared your testimony with somebody? And how did that go? We're not called to convert people. We're just called to take the good news of Jesus to people. That's freeing, by the way. Because, well, you may say, oh, Simon, you're up front and you're articulate and you're the gospel. I feel like I don't know how to do it all the time. I feel inadequate all the time to share the gospel, but I share the gospel. It's God who works in their heart. And I'll say some random thing that didn't even make sense. Like, you know, that one thing really stood out. I'm like, that's not even a part of the gospel. Like, how did God use that? He's like, I just want you to be faithful, Simon. I just want you to share the good news of who you are. And I've come to find at times that sometimes people don't share the, the te their testimony because of two things. One, they don't understand the gospel. They, they don't actually understand what Jesus did on the cross. They don't understand what they've been freed from. They don't understand that they're a new creation. They don't understand that they're now justified before a God that had every right to pour out his wrath on them and that now he is showering them with his grace and his love. They don't understand that it's for everyone all the time, everywhere. And the other thing is sometimes they, don't, they have not seen the transformation in their life to show the difference of where they were and where they are, or at least their new standing. Well, point four says that Jesus wants us to reflect him. The book of John in chapter 13, 34 through 35, it says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He would go on to say this in 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So here's the thing, like, Jesus, God came down to earth in the form of the person of Jesus, okay? So that means that Jesus is God. And that means that Jesus then has the same love that God has and that God is and so what that means is that he lived that love out perfectly in every single aspect of his life. How he spoke, what he thought, how he prayed, 
how he interacted with those that were around him. So, well, he said some hard things sometimes. That didn't seem very loving. Sometimes you actually have to say hard things because you love someone so much that they need to hear that what they're doing is causing pain and anguish in their life, even if they don't understand it. So even when, God, when Jesus was saying hard things, he was loving them perfectly with the love of God. If we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then it tells us that our lives will be marked by the same love in everything we say and everything we do and everything that we think. And what I love is that we get a picture of this in this story. The next person that's introduced in this is a woman named Tabitha, which translates into Greek as Dorcas, and both mean gazelle, like a deer, something that is nimble and that is elegant. That it's actually a very beautiful name. The problem is, is that because of English culture and society, Dorcas does not have a good condentation. Can we just own it? And I mean, every time you're like, oh, that's rough. But this is this woman who was identified by a name that meant gazelle, which had beauty attached to it and grace attached to it. And she, what we learn from this passage, is a great godly woman is what we learn about who she is. It tells us that she was a disciple and that she loved Jesus and that she was full of good works. Now, I want to hear this. It wasn't that she was doing good works so God would love her. It wasn't that she was doing good works so Jesus would love her. She was loved by Jesus, and because she was transformed, she started to live out the good works that the Holy Spirit did in her life, which allowed her to live in such a way that let her be an image bearer, a reflection of God in everything that she did. See, the good works is a byproduct of being transformed by Jesus. It's not how you get to Jesus. We always have to keep telling ourselves that because we will always fall into that trap all the time. All the time. It says that she cared for those in need, that she was extremely generous in what she did, that she used her skills to serve the church and those around her. Doesn't that sound like someone you want at your church? Like, how, Can we get more of those around the church? Like, Those are the ones you're like, whatever you need. Tabitha, whatever you need to keep doing what you're doing, I will give you time, resources, and whatever so you can just keep running in your lane. And if I can be so bold, I was thinking about this this week, and there's a lot of godly women like that here at our church. There are. I love the fact that as I read about the early church and what God's doing in it, I start to see pictures of women in our church that are just like that. It's amazing to see the people. I, I cannot keep telling you how blessed I am to be at this church and to walk alongside such godly men and women. It is such a blessing and a joy. And I just want to thank you for, just like, thank you for calling me here. Anyway, let me shift gears. It shows that she was reflecting the love of Jesus. And what that shows us is that she lived a life full of generosity and that's the same kind of generosity that Jesus showed when he came and poured out God's grace on us and gave his life freely so that we would call on his name. She's the example of a life that's been transformed. My question for you is where in your life do you need to reflect Jesus? 
Where in your life are you not reflecting Jesus that you need to reflect that kind of love? And maybe it's less of an action and it's more of a, how do I direct this at a person that I don't want to show love to? Like if we can just be honest, extra grace required people, you're like, who are they? That's you, if you don't know. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm one of those people. Who do you need to image that love? How do you need to reflect the love of Christ in everything that you do and what you say and how you engage, how you respond, people at work, whatever that may be? Well, here's the thing. Tabitha got sick and she died. And you can only imagine what the church felt in Joppa to lose such a wonderful, godly woman that was serving and that was an example to everyone else that she came in contact with. Now, this part of the section, we don't have a lot of details on. We can ask questions, and it's okay to ask questions. Sometimes we have answers, and sometimes we don't. That's all right. But we have to start asking about the details in here is, why did they put her in the upper room? Why did they take someone who had died and wash her and put her in the upper room? Uh, what would have happened is they would have done that, and then they immediately would have buried her. According to Jewish tradition, they would have been buried the same day. That's how that works. So what's going on? to where they took her and they put her in a place, instead of getting her to the grave as quickly as possible, they stop and they put her in in this upper room, which would have been more of like the living room of that area at that time. See, when they heard that Peter was nearby, why did they send for him right away to bring him back? Was it to perform a, a funeral? Was it just to mourn with them? Was it to celebrate her life and, and how God had worked in her life? Was it to provide extra comfort to the church at that time with all the people that would need to be loved on and cared for and grieved with? Well, I believe, after studying this passage and doing all the research on it, I believe that they wanted him to come and to bring her back to life. I believe that that's what they were actually trying to, like, infer without actually asking. Like, they just kind of set it up in such a way of like, well, you know, you're here and you're an apostle and you can do crazy things. Like, eh, maybe? Like, they didn't bury her right away. They did put her in the upper room. They sent for Peter and said, without delay, that there was an urgency. Like, why is there an urgency if there's a dead person? They're not going anywhere, right? Like, there's something there. See, I believe the, the church knew and the, the, all the information had spread about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles and what was going on. And I believe they wanted to do this miracle. Which brings us to our fifth point, is that Jesus brings life. I'm not going to read all these verses, but I'm going to throw them out here for you. You can research those later. You can write those down. Uh, you can talk about those in your life group if you want to. But we see in John 6, 57, John 10, 28, Romans 6, 23, John 5, 21, 1 Corinthians 1545, all of these verses, all of these passages keep pointing to the same thing, is that Jesus brings life, and not just regular life, eternal life, life that never ends. So Peter makes this four-ish hour walk to go to Joppa. And here's the thing, it's a scene that he would have recognized It's something that would have been burned into his memory. See, he would have seen this with Jairus' daughter when Jesus raised her from the dead in Luke 8, 40 through 56. 
people are crying and weeping and mourning. And, I, and I'll just, as a pastor, you just get into weird places. I've been in a lot of houses where someone had just died and there's either a dead body in the middle of the room or in the room in the back. Those are heavy moments that you see the hurt that people experience. That if you like, oh, you know, what's so bad about sin? Go sit in that room and that's the effects of sin and that's what's so bad about sin is what it creates. And everyone in that room feels that loss. So he would have felt that heavy feeling of just sadness and mourning in that room. And what do they start doing? They start bringing like, she made this and she made that and all this tunic. Like she made, like what are they doing? They're remembering and honoring her life in that moment, aren't they? And they're, they're looking for some kind of physical attachment to show what a wonderful person that she was. I've had people say, oh, this is a painting that so-and-so did or here's a trophy that they got. They want to show like, look at how they were just a wonderful person. I want you to experience that. And these are the things we can point to. See, Jesus brings this eternal life, which is better than this life. And we have to understand that. So Peter gets that. Peter then sends them out of the room. It's okay, everyone, everyone leave. And by the way, read through Luke 8. Read through that section because the parallels are crazy as you see what Peter's doing. And he gets on his knees, which is different. And he prayed. Again, we need to stop on this moment for a second. Because this is showing that it's not in his power. That it's not in Peter's ability. But it's in Jesus. There's something just amazing about prayer. You can't be proud and pray. Or at least have it be effective. Like, prayer automatically puts us in a state of humility, doesn't it? Because what you're saying in that moment, pride says, I can. I have the ability to do X, Y, Z. I'm not going to ask for help because I'm going to do it myself. Prayer is saying, I can't do this. I don't have the ability to do this. I can't solve this problem. And so I'm going to turn to the only one that I know who can actually do the problem, who can solve this issue. He's saying, God, I can't. I'm just Peter. I'm just a guy. But you can. Will you please help? Will you do the work? And he tells her to get up. Interestingly enough, if you look at the phrase that Jesus said when he said uh, to get up, it's almost the exact same wording as what Peter says. It's one letter off, which is pretty crazy. And so he says this phrase that is exactly what Jesus said. And it says that she opens her eyes and she gets up and she looks at Peter and Peter then grabs her by the hand. Just a fun, fun fact. Jesus grabbed the, um, the dead girl's hand first and then healed her. You know what he's saying? Jesus can make unclean people clean. And that sin isn't going to transform him into a sinner. Whereas Peter is like, I... I'll be unclean, so I'm not going to do that. He grabbed her hand afterwards. Just a fun little thing to think about. But what does this miracle mean? So we know that she was a believer, right? It wasn't about like some salvation for her, was it? She was saved. It tells us in the passage that she was a believer, a follower of Jesus, that that's who she was. So what is the message that, that Peter was trying to convey to, to them, and what is the message he's trying to convey to us? Here's the message. That works for both sides. 
we are all spiritually dead without Jesus. Every single one of us. There is no life without Jesus. In John 14, 6, it would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no life without Jesus. I mean, it'd be great to say that all religions lead to God and that'd be great and we could all hug and kumbaya and there'd be no change in our life. But the reality is that's not what Jesus said. It's not. There is one way to God and it is through the atoning sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, period. So that's unloving. It'd be unloving for me not to tell you that because if that's true, I'd be the worst person in the world by not telling you. They were unable to see God's power like physically at times. And so I think what we see happen here is that Peter wants to show them the power of God at work and what he's doing. That there is life after death. That they, it would put so much fuel in their tank because we're talking about we're going to have this new life. We're going to be raised from the dead. And what does Peter do? He comes and he says, I'm going to raise this person from the dead. Like here's a glimpse of what God is doing. The God that we worship is the God that brings life. It's also nodding to the fact of what happened with Jesus. Jesus died and what happened? He rose from the dead. That there was life after death when placed in Christ. My question is this, and I don't know where people are in this room. Have you received the life that Jesus offers? Have you bowed a knee to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you come to a place where you realize that you don't have the ability to heal yourself like Aeneas? Do you realize that you can't bring yourself life like Tabitha? Do you realize that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross in your place so you could have salvation? And all you have to do is call on his name and believe that he is God, that he came to earth, that he died on the cross. He took your sins. He met the penalty. And he gives you his righteousness as he rose again on the third day. Six, the gospel spreads. The result is similar to what we've seen over and over again in the book of Acts. I'm going to list off some verses. You can look them up later and use those in your life group as well. But we see in Acts 2.41, Acts 2.47, Acts 4.4, Acts 5.14, Acts 6.7. And you can lean those up for a second so people can write those down. And sometimes you go like, oh no, I can't get to all the stuff right away. There you go. I'll wait on it. But we see the same exact thing happening in verse 35 with Aeneas. And in verse 42, with Tabitha, that new life brings new life. And that people turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then we see that Peter just stays there. And he keeps pouring into the church in Joppa, teaching and preaching the word of God and Jesus as the Christ. What I love is that Peter's just faithful wherever he goes. He seizes every opportunity to point others to Jesus in everything. The other thing that we see is the gospel spreads to the margins. We are literally on the farthest reaches of where Judaism is hitting in that point, and the areas are there, so it's all on the fringes. The last nine chapters have been about Jerusalem and spreading out and spreading out and spreading out, and now they're the very tip and the edge of those regions. And I love that Jesus sees the fringes, he sees those that are on the margins and he reaches out to them. He goes to where they are. We even see a glimpse of this at the end of our story with how Peter, it says that Peter saved with one Simon the Tanner. That may not seem like a big deal, 
But if you understand Judaism and how it works, this guy would spend his day touching dead things all the time. Just constantly touching dead things all the time, which in Jewish tradition would have made him what? Unclean. Absolutely. So even the fact that there's this guy named Simon the Tanner's there, that Jesus goes and stays with this unclean dude. What is he saying? Jesus makes the unclean clean. That you can't be too unclean for the gospel. That you can't have sinned too much. That Jesus' blood won't atone for that sin. That's what he's saying. And he spends time with him and he loves him. My question is this. Who do you need to reach out to? Who do you need to take Jesus to? See, here's the thing. Everything that we're studying about today is all about being on mission. That God is doing a work among his people. And we see that the world cannot miss what Jesus is doing in our lives. That he's changing our lives. That he's bringing people back to him. That he's bringing healing. He is bringing life. And if you've been healed... You need to make that known. If you've received this new life, you need to tell the world. Like Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm with you always until the end of the age. Those are our marching orders. That's what we've been called to do. And what I love is that the parallels will start to play out more and more. And I, I think this is a great talking point in your life groups this week, is that Jesus was on mission and he did the very same thing. And now we're seeing Peter's life on mission, doing the very same thing that Jesus is doing. And we're about to see Saul's life, which will become Paul, on mission, doing the very same thing. My question is this, are you going to do the very same thing? Are you going to be on mission? Are you going to take the most powerful message in the world to a dark and broken place? Because here's the thing I learned on going on these missions trips. I didn't have to go anywhere. Because I looked around and when I, as I started to understand the gospel more and more, you know what I saw? That there are a lot of people who don't know Jesus. There's a lot of people who are spiritually crippled or who are spiritually dead who need to hear the truth. And if I just start with loving who God's put in front of me to be on mission and to point them to Christ, maybe he'll take me someplace else. I don't know. Maybe he won't. Maybe God's call for you is here. Maybe it's another country. It doesn't really matter. It's just like Peter, wherever you are, we're on mission and we're on point to do what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for just thank you for what you do, and I thank you that all of us have sat in here who know you, Jesus, have been brought the message of your son, that you've done something in our lives where you've healed us of sin, you've given us new life, you've transformed us, and you've called us to go take this message forward as the word Christian means little Christ, that we would be on mission just like Jesus was serving those who need to hear the truth to be saved. Lord, I ask that you would make us a church that's on mission, that is taking the gospel forward everywhere. Lord, I don't know where these questions that we talked about hit. I do ask that we would talk about those with others. Where we need to repent, let us repent. Where we need to reflect you more, let us reflect you more. When we look to you for all of our healing and all the life. We love you and we pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.